0: Hello from the ABA Midyear Meeting 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm Patrick Pallas, and I'm here with... Bill Burnett. And we're on the road with the Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here in Sin City. Today I'm talking about Designing Your Life with New York Times bestselling author, Bill Burnett. Bill, thank you very much for joining us. It's, it's a pleasure to have the chance to talk with you and interview you today.
1: Oh, that's fantastic, I'm glad to be here.
0: You know, for those people that maybe don't know you as well as they might want, can you just give us a little background about how you got here?
1: Sure, sure. You know, I'm a sort of lifelong designer. I've been working in industry for years and years. I was worked at Apple doing uh, the original Powerbooks, but my very first job was at Kenner Toys in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I got to design Star Wars toys. But after I came back to, for my graduate degree at Stanford, I started teaching. And just, you know, one class a year for a bunch of years. And about 10-12 years ago, I decided to take a full-time job, so I'm now the Executive Director Of the design program at Stanford. We have an undergraduate and a graduate program, lots of great students going out to solve hard problems, really passionate. It's a really fun job to have because I get to teach and I get to run the program.
0: So, you're here at this ABA conference and at the National Council of Bar Presidents. You were talking about design, design thinking in particular. Yeah. And, you know, for some lawyers, that's something they know but I'm gonna say for a lot of the listeners, design thinking may not be something they know all that well. Sure. Can you kind of give us the version or short version of what design thinking is and and how it works?
1: Right, right. Well, we started, you know, we've been doing design and design, human-centered design, the original name, I guess, for years and years, since since the 60s and 70s. But in the last 10, 12 years or so, this idea of design thinking, this methodology that anyone can learn to do innovation, has become quite popular. We've got a a graduate institute called the D School that teaches it. We bring people in from all over the country to learn it. Lots and lots of companies are using it as their innovation strategy. And you can certainly design products or services or experiences with it, but we're also finding people using it for strategy, for reinventing a law firm, for reinventing your practice. Um, It's just a great way to approach a problem when when the future's a little ambiguous, can't get a lot of data, but you can use techniques like um, ethnography and prototyping to kind of build your way forward into some kind of a new-to-the-world idea.
0: You know, a lot of us, I think, will start with the idea well that we have a problem. There's an issue at the bar we have to work with. There's a, an issue in our profession, say, access to justice, something like that. Right. And we, like, chew away at the problem as we define it. is right. uh, Isn't that kind of one of the things that design thinking tackles?
1: Yeah. you know, A lot of times people, they think they know what their problem is and they certainly know it from their point of view, but they may not know it from the point of view of the folks they're trying to help. So we say in, in the first step in design thinking is empathy, going out in the world and really discovering, okay, you can you talk about you know, access to justice, but what's really going on in the world? And it's probably not one problem, right? There's probably lots of different reasons that people don't feel they have access. Maybe they don't have... The money. Maybe they're in a community where there are no lawyers. Maybe they're just scared because lawyers and law sounds like a scary thing. Right, right. You know, um, they could be intimidated. Um, there's a lot of different reasons. And when you actually engage with empathy, the, the people you're trying to serve, you discover often that you've been working maybe not on the wrong problem, but not on the, on the best version of the problem.
0: And I asked this question to the, to the audience earlier today about how many of you applied design thinking to your bar work and, and like nobody raised their hand, maybe one person did. And sure. then I said, well, how many of you have ever applied design thinking to your life? And I almost saw people going, wait to our, to our life. <laughs> can, can you do that? Is that a thing? Yeah. Right. But that's, that's your thing. And, and tell us about this, the shift to using design thinking for products, you know, like for, yeah, for Star sure, Wars toys sure. to my life.
1: Yeah. And no, it's been an interesting journey. Um, you know, when I started uh, full-time at Stanford, I was getting, having office hours with lots of students. And even though the Stanford kids are pretty bright, they don't know how to launch. They don't know what they want to be when they grow up. They're, they're worried that their life won't be meaningful. All, all the things we all worry about. And so uh, my, my buddy, Dave Evans, who I've done some work with before, came over from uh, Berkeley. And he said, hey, let's do a class for these kids. And I said, well, let's, if we do it, let's do it around design. So you can apply the principles of empathy—empathy empathy for yourself, empathy for what the world needs. You can prototype your way forward with prototyping, interviewing, and prototyping experiences. There's lots of ways to take the design principles and apply them to your life, and that turned out to be very, very popular. It's one of the most popular electives at Stanford, and then um, we uh, we ended up writing a book, and the book was, you know, turned out to be pretty popular as well. <laughs> pretty popular. So, yeah. so it seems like it's really helpful to reframe your life as and your future, not as some kind of a problem to be solved, but sort of a design and adventure to go on. And then to use the, the principles of design thinking, human-centered design, to kind of prototype your way into the life you really want to live. And on along the way, we met a lot of psychologists and a lot of people in in, uh, in the fields of you know coaching and, and helping that us into all the dysfunctional beliefs people have. They think it's too late. I can't do anything now. Or I, I did the wrong thing in college and now I'm stuck. Right. Or you know I'm, I'm supposed to follow my passion, but I don't even know what that is. So I'm stuck. And we just blow up all those myths in the book. There's no, you know, designers get stuck a lot because we're always working on new things, but we just have a lot of tools and techniques for getting unstuck. And that's what we teach people.
0: Well, I love that. Cause you just touched on something that I had, as you were talking, I had in my head, it, everyone says, Follow your passion. Sure. You know, just, just follow your passion. Like, like, it's that easy.
1: We're at Stanford, and I mentioned this in my other talk. We, we have to be data-driven. We can't just make stuff up. So we went over to the, uh, a buddy of ours, Bill, um, Bill Damon, and he's over at the Stanford Center for the Study of Adolescence. By the way, adolescence now goes up to 26 as an academic subject. So if you've got any children less than 26, don't worry. They're still adolescent. <laughs> Good um, to know. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, actually, you know, like boys' brains don't fully develop till they were 25 or 26 anyway. But anyway, Bill studied this question. It turns out only 20% of the people that he could find had any singular passion in life. So we hate an idea that's like, well, do you have a passion? No, okay, go to the back of the line. When you get one, we'll help you, right? Eight out of ten times, we've got to reject people. Passion turns out to be something you actually work into. It's not a starting point. It's something you discover after you've worked in a field for a while. You, may end up, you, you thought you liked law, and all of a sudden you discover there's a per- certain type of law that you're really excited about. So, you know, one, one just because you're passionate doesn't mean the world's going to pay you to do it. Two, it's hardly ever the place to start, and, and it really makes people feel bad. Like, Because I, 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 when you hear the question, you assume, well, everybody else must have one, right? And I'm the only loser, you know, in the bunch. Turns out eight out of ten people don't have one.
0: And you know, so often I think in law, and maybe just built into being a, a plaintiff's lawyer like I am, we hit these big problems. Like we can do this. That's a windmill. I can tilt at that baby yeah. all day long. I'm going to make this make this happen. But you're really good at that kind of summing that up. Uh, that there's just some problems that maybe you just shouldn't
1: oh, shouldn't yeah. tackle. We watch how people were getting stuck, and we don't want to. We want to be helpful, right? So there's there's two kinds of problems that we notice people get stuck on a lot. And if you just reframe them, you can release. One we call an anchor problem. An anchor problem is when you actually got the solution in the problem. You know, I really want to go. I want to. I want to go sailing every weekend, but I can't afford a sailboat. So my problem is, how do I afford a sailboat? Well, that's you see how the problems and the solutions in the problem. Like there's lots of ways to go sailing on the weekend, but you've decided the only way to do it is to do something you can't do, which because you don't have enough money for the boat. And by the way, anybody who actually knows anything about sailing is you don't want to own your own boat. That's crazy. You want to go you know, rent one, you want to be in a sailing club, you want to be able to sa- sail the 32 footer and then you know, the 28 footer. So there's lots of ways when you unhook the anchor to be free, but the other class of problems is gravity. Right. Now, And we call them gravity problems because you just can't change them. You know, like uh, my my buddy Dave, my co-author, is a bicyclist, and he's noticing that, boy, the hills are either getting steeper, he's getting slower, one or the other. He's not sure, but could we do something about this gravity thing? Right, my
0: windmills are getting bigger and bigger every year.
1: And uh, the answer is no, actually gravity is just all off nature. Now, you may decide... That, you're, you know, you want, you want to work on social justice. You want to work on, you know, uh, equity for women. You want to work on access to, you know, to, to the legal system for people who, who don't have access. Those are noble causes. And if you decide that's your cause, then go for it and work hard. And, you know, and accept that uh, what do you think? Martin Luther King said the arc of justice bends slowly, right. but it bends towards the truth. So, you know, good for you to work on that stuff. But, you know, there's a lot of problems in the world that just aren't your problem. And, and you know you can say, uh, one example was we were working with a, a startup company that had been growing really, really, really fast, and then it started to slow down. And you know if you'd been one of the early people, every six months you got a promotion. Hey, you've been here six months, you're the director of engineering. Hey, you've been here, you're good, you're the vice president because we don't have anybody else, right? But as it started to slow down, people started to say, well, when do I get promoted? And, and the gravity problem was, hey, this company's too big and I'm not getting promoted. It's like, well, the reality is when companies get big, You know, there's a line at the door for the vice president's job, and that's. There's lots of ways to be happy. You can go sideways. You can go. You know, you can go out. You can go around, but you can't go up. So don't get stuck in a gravity problem because there's nothing you can do. The thing is to accept. First step in design thinking is accept. My buddy Dave would say you can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. So accept the problem. (laughs) This company isn't growing. Decide if you want to stay or go. Then decide. Then decide what would really make you happy. It's just a new challenge, right? Going up is really just a new challenge. In fact, a lot of times people go up and they hate their job (laughs) because they they don't get to do the thing they loved. They just get to manage it. So really be careful that you don't, there are windmills worth tilting and then there's some that just aren't your windmill.
0: You know that, that rings up you know such a laundry list of, of interesting problems I think that, that we all face and one of the things that you know lawyers are worried about where our profession is is heading uh-huh. what it's going to look like right. and what the legal economy how it's changing all the way around us yeah. and so we sit down in boards and and leadership positions and and we have these conversations about how we can move the law forward how we can change it so we can help more people how right, how we can do all these things innovation and what it means to us. And you have that person or people who always say, well, where's the data behind that? If we're going to innovate, show me that it's already been done. Show me that it, it <laughs> works. Like, yeah. this is already a path that's been, right. been proven. So help us using this design thinking, what do you do when there isn't any data, when there's not somebody who's worn that path, and you have real problems you want to solve that aren't windmills you're tilting? Well, yeah, up, no, right? absolutely. Well, where and, do we go from there?
1: You know, if, and, you know, if your business model is changing and you don't respond— Something bad's going to happen, right? I mean, so you've got to respond. Now, look, the definition of innovation is it's new to the world. Nobody's done it. That's what made the iPhone amazing. That's what makes you know, the Tesla amazing. That's what makes a lot of things amazing. No one had ever done it. In fact, nobody even thought it could be done. So when you're trying to make things new to the world, when you're trying to innovate, and our, our methodology is, to, is a way to innovate regularly, which is also sort of a funny oxymoron. Like, how do you innovate regularly? Well, you use empathy to understand the problem. You probe the solution, you you kind of sneak up on the solution by building lots of little small solutions, not complete things, little tiny prototypes. And then you see what works, and eventually you start gathering data about a possible future. Now, the tricky bit is that as you start making different things happen, people change their mind about what they want. Mm. So it's a very interactive process where you're kind of co-creating this future with people who are are reluctant maybe to move to that future but you do it in very small steps and you do it through this process of prototyping and iterating and staying really really clear on what problem you're solving. Which turns out my co-author Dave has been working with a big law firm in, in the bay area, you know, used to be very engaged with startups and lots of lots and lots of, you know, stuff around intellectual property and things. And that whole field is really changing the valley's changing a lot. And startups aren't going public, they're getting acquired or startups are are staying you know, unicorns and not, not even having an exit event. Um, the way uh, the VCs want to pay for legal services is changing. And so they've just completed a whole design thinking exercise over a year and a half of really trying to explore wow. what, would, what is the future of our practice. You know, lawyers don't go into the law to, to be salesmen, they want to be lawyers. Right. But inevitably they're out there trying to convince a client to give them money. And so it's interesting how we frame what we do and how we have to sometimes reframe in order to be relevant in, in the changing reality. I always tell my students in designing your life or in designing a product, look, you know, future's going to come. Somebody's going to out invent you if you don't keep inventing, you know, a product or a service or whatever. So the future's going to come. You only have two choices, accept the default of whatever happens and you just respond and hope you don't, you know, hope, you know, hope you're still relevant or hope you're happy or have some intentionality, put a design in place, put two or three designs in place, probe that future with prototypes and see what's going to happen. Because uh, my, my quote I ended with today was, um, Alan Kay was one of the Apple fellows, a smart guy in the computer industry. He said, the best way to predict the future is to invent it, right? So be the inventor of your future. Don't just wait for it to happen.
0: I love that whole idea. To me, buried in there somewhere is, is this, this idea that I think so often... You know lawyers have a trial or have a case and it's about win or lose mm-hmm. and lose means fail mm-hmm. fail is bad yeah. so we only yeah. have one path you I, only I can didn't hire you to lose right <laughs> and so the, the idea of innovation that that lawyers maybe uh have a hard time getting our hands around is that that failure might be okay mm-hmm. but maybe failure is a process i don't know walk me through how failure fits into or even if you call it failure i don't know fits into this whole design
1: process you know uh, david kelly who's our senior guy and the guy who started IDEO and the d school and a bunch of other things um he wrote a book on he called creative confidence how do you learn to be confident in your creativity again and he talked about you know fail early fail fast fail often because the faster you fail more you'll the faster you'll succeed but that you know there's let's be clear if we lose the case and i go to prison that's not a good failure right right now maybe maybe if you negotiated that down to a you know small number of years instead of a large number of years we can count it as a win so outcomes that are bad are just bad but how we get there and what we try you know what, what questions we ask what, what do we explore about that possible future and did we exhaust all the possible opportunities before we made a decision. That's the kind of stuff where, look, if you're going to innovate, you're going to, you know, what the famous uh, Thomas Edison quote, I know 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb, right? Right. He had 10,000 prototypes. I don't know if that's literally true, but he had a lot and none of them worked, but he didn't view it as a failure. He just viewed it as learning. So a, you know, a hard failure, you know, I didn't get what I wanted. Somebody died. You know, the, the, we, you, you can't reframe those things. That's just life, and you deal with life, you know, as is appropriate. But when you're trying to do something new and reinvent your business model, reengage in a new way with your clients, kind of get more excited about your profession. Maybe, you know, everybody at certain points in their life, in their professional life, typically in their 30s and 40s, kind of looks up and goes, "Is this it? Is this all? Is this the whole thing?" I mean, I'm kind of on the top of the pile and. It's not as good as I thought, you know, or, or it's not what I wanted. So when you're, when you're in those moments and you're trying to reinvent, you're going to try a lot of stuff. And you're going to learn as much from the things that didn't work as the things that worked. So those are the kinds of, you know, soft failures, what we call failure immunity. If you're prototyping and it doesn't work, in fact, I'll give you an example. We're trying to figure out how to teach designing your life in Japan, and I have a wonderful team over there, and they're really smart folks, uh, you know, ex-McKinsey fellows and next, you know, smart trainers and stuff. And we ran our first workshop uh, in Japan with eight people. Who were, we, you know, picked them because we thought they could kind of do it, and it was a disaster. None of the exercises worked. Oh, boy. None, I mean, like, zero <laughs> out of eight. The Japanese don't brainstorm in, in public because it's embarrassing. The Japanese don't share their feelings because you just don't do that in the Japanese culture. The Jap- and it was really interesting. Lots of really huge cultural, you know, things popped up that we were unaware of. Um, that's why we did a short, pro- a small prototype, half a day, eight people, and, and who spoke a lot of English. So we could, we could debrief and say, how come that didn't work? Or how come this didn't work? We learned so much from that. So I wouldn't call that a failure. I would call that the necessary first step to figuring out how to translate. Because I absolutely believe no matter where you are, whatever culture you grew up in, you want to be happy. You want your life to have some meaning outside of just making money and going to work. David Brooks talked about in an article in the New York Times, eulogy virtues versus resume virtues you don't want people standing around you know the graveside saying well you know patrick was a great guy he he got his uh he got his invoices done on time and he made always a good had sh- his billable hours and, he, and he, he had his billable hours up and he made a good spreadsheet you know you don't want that you want him to say he was a, a great man he was a lovely father he was a good human he, he was a great you know little league coach whatever yoga instructor you want people to talk about the things that matter so i think that's true everywhere but i think there's a lot of different ways to the top of that mountain and you know we're going to have to completely redesign our exercises for it to work in a culture that's, that's more of a collectivist culture and where standing out is not what you want to do and where sharing feelings is uh, more of a private thing. So we'll figure it out.
0: It reminds me of that, uh, that study about uh, interviewing 1,000 people at the end of their life who lived what would appear to be very successful lives. And, right. they, and they all say, uh, nobody says, I wish I'd worked more. Like you're on your last day, I wish no, I'd worked yeah, more. kind right?
1: of work more, you know? Right. But I should sure, put on more Saturdays, man.
0: But I love the idea of failing to to achieve, right? Yeah. Of of building your way forward one step at a time in your design
1: to get you're, there. You're going to make a lot of bad light bulbs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, let me just ask you uh, one more question. And we, we don't have much time, but just a little bit about the, the process. For those people who want to go through the design mm-hmm. think process, there's, there's just yeah. steps. Can you just walk us through those, those steps?
1: There's a bunch of stuff in the book, and you can use it in any order. But it basically boils down to, you know, start with curiosity. Get curious about the world. What are you interested in? What do you want to do next? What's not working? Get curious. Go out and talk to people because people have ideas. It's radical collaboration in the world. Then build stuff. Try some prototypes, and then come back and tell your story. Hey, this is what happened. Because when you tell your story back out to the world, the world's going to talk back to you, and that story is going to get you more opportunities and create this sort of virtual cycle of curiosity leads to conversation, leads to prototypes, leads to you know more stories. So that's the basic thing. We have people who write a work view, 250 words. What's your theory of work? Why do we work? And 250 words on life view what's the meaning of life those two things form your compass and from there you can just keep you know we've got a bunch of different exercises to kind of just untangle the you know that messy stuff that's going on in our head sometimes where we can't really think clearly about what we want and um, you'd think we all would know but we don't know we really don't know what we want
0: you know, I just I love this whole this whole model of, of design thinking, how we can apply it to social justice issues, we can apply it to how to build a better business model for Absolutely, us to yeah. practice and we can turn it into how to design your life, right? Yeah. How to make a yeah. better life. There's so many ways for doing this. And there's so much more I'd love to ask you and talk about. And I'm, 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 I'm sorry we're out of time, but you know what? I know that our listeners will have questions and want to get more information. Mm-hmm. Where can they contact you? Where can they get more information?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, we, we have a website for the book and for the kind of maybe the movement. I don't know if that's too big a word, but the website is designingyour.life. So .life is the is the sort of .com extension, designingyour.life. There's also a Facebook page if you just go to, you know, designing your life, the book on Facebook. Lots of people are talking there. We've got, we're tracking about 800 book clubs because people are doing the book together. It's, it's, it's fun to have a design team and, and do all the exercise together. So you can get on the Facebook page. And then we started certifying a lot of coaches. So if you go to the, if you go to the website, you'll find coaches, maybe a coach in your area who could coach you through the exercises on the book. That is the so designing your dot life.
0: That is amazing. I'm, I'm so thankful well, folks, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank, really thank our guest, Bill Burnett, for joining us uh, today. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road, Legal.